Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one small piece of American writing using the wonderful Library of America as my as my source material. And in this episode, we have come to the end of my journey through the works of James Weldon Johnson, a really um, sharp entry in the Library of America, which has um, two major works by Johnson. Uh, the Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man and, and Along This Way, his own memoirs. And then we have a, a, a pretty wide selection of his essays and journalistic writing and even some of his poetry and, and some of of the lyrics to some of the songs he wrote. Um, for much of his career in his 20s, he, he was writing poetry that his brother, Rosamond, then set to music. One of which, of course, is the bumper for this particular series, Lift Every Voice and Sing. So um, we've looked at most of this writing, but right now we're just coming to the end of, of this series, the last 100 pages or so of this anthology. And we have five essays and then some, some poems to look at. So I'm just going to talk about my, my, my feelings about these, these works. Uh, in my previous episode, I was, I was a bit... I don't know, I felt like I was repeating a lot of what I was saying during my Du Bois series. Uh, of course, this has been part of a series on, on turn-of-the-century black writers, where I looked at Charles Chestnut, and then W.E.B. Du Bois, and, and then Johnson. And, you know, what he was writing in the context of World War One, the, the so-called Wilsonian moment, which, um, of course, Wilson's racial politics being what they are, I, I think it's we, we might want to rethink how we use this term. Um, certainly the claim for self-determination um, was taken seriously by many non-whites, uh, despite whatever Wilson's own own racial politics um, in the United States may have been. Um, Johnson does call Wilson out pretty strongly for these. Um, what we have is comments on Johnson's comments on the birth of the nation, service in World War One, uh, some of the just the politics of there. And that in those themes, he really seem to be saying a lot of the same things that Du Bois was saying in his writings from the same period of time. It's, but I think some of his writings of his late 20s, Johnson's writings from the late 20s and the 30s, where we start to really get him a little bit more reflecting on his own career and his interests. And he starts, we, he starts to do things that write about things in ways that, that I think make him a little bit more distinctive from, from Du Bois. Um, especially when he talks about art and, and culture and music and, and black folklore and folk traditions and things like that. And one of his greatest works, uh, God's Trombones, the last one we're going to look at in this in this episode, is really his own personal reflection on, on a very interesting part of, of, of black religious folklore and, and the black religious tradition in America. But anyways, I, I'm just going to jump right in uh, where I left off last Last episode, um, the last thing I looked at last time was uh, the preface to his anthology of Negro poetry that was published in in 1921. Um, it's actually a, a book I'd like to get a take a look at because based on this, we just have the introduction. We don't have the whole anthology of, of poetry, obviously, but it gives a pretty good summary of what he's trying to do here. And it sounds like this started out as a really small work that was just going to include a handful of, of what he thought was really the greats. And then it got bigger and bigger as he started to think more about it. And it became a much more significant, significant text. 
of course, I haven't seen it. I just have this introduction. Um, but anyway, so that's where we're going to pick up around the, the early early 1920s with these other other works by, by Johnson. And the first one we're going to look at was published in 1924 in Current History. And I don't know anything about that particular magazine. That sounds like a, a, just a news magazine. Uh, Johnson had published both in the black press and in... And in um, more national press, like his great his great article on Haiti, his great anti-imperialist article on Haiti, calling for self-determination for Haiti in 1920, what was written in, in the nation. Um, and this this one I don't know much about current history, but anyways, 1924, and he does a couple of things in this this essay. Um, we know from his autobiography along this way that he was spending a lot of his effort in the 1920s on the dire anti-lynching bill. And I talked about it when we looked at that, that those memoirs. Essentially, the dire anti-lynching bill would have made participation in extrajudicial killings, um, you know, such as lynchings, federal crimes, meaning they'd be investigated by the federal government, not by state law. Um, but it also raised penalties for participating in it and, you know, and, in, in penalizing police officers who didn't do their duty in protecting people under under police custody. Uh, the way lynchings normally went, went is someone would be arrested for some crime or some, some accusation. Often it was just an accusation, not a real crime, but you know they'd be arrested and before courts could go into action and, and prosecute, someone or not prosecute, depending on what the judges and the DAs decided, a mob would arrive at the police station and drag the individual out and, and then kill him. This was a, a long tradition in American, especially in frontier areas. Uh, we he, Johnson's even kind of honest about how far back this goes, even talking about it in the context of, of Kansas, bleeding Kansas in the in the 1850s, in the lead up to the to the Civil War, he even talks about it going back to some of the early wars between whites and the Indians during in the frontier period. So it, it's kind of emerged out of this frontier culture of the United States. But you know, certainly the post-war American South wasn't a frontier area, and they had had well-developed systems of 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 criminal justice, you know, certainly unfair and, and plagued with racism, but still they were there. There was no justifiable reason for for going around that. Um, but still, he admits that there was this long history to it. Um, but anyways, uh, back to what this dire anti-lynching bill do is basically increase penalties, make it a federal crime, make it investigatable by by federal authorities. And this, this law uh, eventually passed the House of Representatives, but failed in the Senate. So it was a real blow to the agenda of the NAACP in their anti-lynching agenda. And this essay is called Lynching America's Disgrace. It's just a description of this failure of, the, or, or basically the context for the anti-lynching bill. But then his real argument about lynching and its purpose is what might seem obvious to us, um, but maybe not as obvious to people in the 1920s or something that needed to be reminded, or people need to be reminded of, was simply that, lynching was almost, you know, was fully about maintaining white supremacy. And even more so, it was, it was a, it's a political act, I guess, is, is, is Johnson's core argument here. Quote, lynching was an instrument in driving the Negro out of politics in the South after the Reconstruction period. More lynchings took place in the five-year period 
between 1889 and 1893 than in any subsequent period covering the same amount of time. Lynching was not only, as it continues to be, an instrument for terrorizing Negroes, keeping them from voting and in a position of inferior, it has as well been an instrument of economic exploitation, reinforcing peonage in the cotton-raising sections of the country, making it almost hopeless in many sections for colored men even to ask for simple justice, as many prominent white Southerners have publicly admitted. What he doesn't get it into is the, the sexual politics of lynching, the kind of arguments made by um, Ida B. Wells Barnett. If you've read her works on, on lynching, she talks a bit about this. She, I mean, she talks about, and I think it's the essay, Lynch Law. She wrote you know, more than one thing on lynching, but I forget exactly where it is. But she, she talks about this, the way lynching gets justified as protecting the, the honor of white womanhood in the South. And, and she exposes this as essentially a lie. And it's actually a lot much more about the sexual anxieties of, of white men. Um, he doesn't get there. He, he kind of hints at that, I think, in Along This Way somewhere. He, there are other moments in his writing where he, he sort of talks about this aspect of it, but he's not doing it here. And maybe it has to do with his audience. Um, but anyways, he's, he's quiet on that part, but he does come out and make a case for lynching as part of the, the institutions of, of white supremacy and of, of maintaining the color line. So uh, an important essay, but uh, nothing too surprising there. Uh, the next one we have is another preface. The next article we have is another preface uh, written in 1926 called uh, basically the preface to a book, the second book of Negro spirituals, which um, is something he put together. Another thing he, um, no, I don't think he anthologized this one. I think he just wrote the, wrote the preface for it, but it, it's, it's like another collection of, of black verse. In this case, it's, it's what, or sometimes called spirituals, what uh, Du Bois calls sorrow songs, which other people might call plantation songs, and other different words. I, I don't really like the term spirituals for these because it, it makes them more strictly religious. And the, yeah, they have religious components, but it, it kind of distances the, the songs from uh, the condition of, of, of slavery and the violence of slavery and, and the trauma of that. Um, now, I don't think the word spiritual necessarily does that, but I think often they, they get sometimes I, I don't I like to be, you know, have this reminder that these songs were you know, coming out of some of the most oppressed people, you know, in, in world history. But anyways, um, what does he say about these? Well, um, he, he actually has a couple of things to say, but the heart of his argument in the preface to this this book of, of spirituals is the connection between these this verse and these traditions and this music and the the new black music that was active in the 1920s and in the Harlem Renaissance and it was rising in national prominence so you know this i mean this was this was so noticeable the, this rise of black music in the 1920s that in one of his new york age uh, editorials which we talked about in the last episode he actually had to deal with a I think it must have been a white um, writers, you know, basically saying, oh, the poor white musician, his music isn't appreciated anymore. Um, but he, he's then taking those current trends in American music and then connecting them to these these traditional folk um, music forms from from before the Civil War. And uh, as you might expect, he he sees these as uh, significant cultural texts of of American slave quote. 
In the spiritual, the Negro did express his religious hopes and fears, his faith and his doubts. In them, he also expressed his theological and ethical views and sounded his exhortations and warnings. Songs of his character constitute the bulk of the spirituals, but in a large proportion of the songs, the Negro passed over the strict limits of religion and covered nearly the whole range of his group experiences, the notable exception being sex. In many of the spirituals, the Negro gave wide play to his imagination. In them, he told his stories and drew his morals therefrom. He dreamed his dreams and declared his vision. He uttered his despair and prophesied his victories. He also spoke the group wisdom and expressed the group philosophy of life. And there's more along this line. I mean, this idea of them as, as a full culture, right? They're a part of this group culture that are trying to get at the whole, that, that allows into the whole experience of, of these people. Um, he really does think uh, that music is a powerful component of black black culture as well, and he, he thinks another reason you might want to study these spirituals is to get at these these musical traditions and how certain and how composers rely on you know contemporary composers rely on the musical developments made um, by enslaved men and women. Oh, and I just looked this up. He actually did collect the the pieces in this book. So this is edited by him. And not only that, his brother, Rosamund Johnson, arranged the, you know, provided the music accompaniment. So this book has, you know, the music alongside the, 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 the verse that, that accompanies this, this music. But of course, they would be arranged as best he could. Of course, these are organic. They develop over time and, and the exact music that went with these are not always well known, right? Because we, of course, rely on post-war interpreters, people who remember these songs, and and it changes over time. And I think that's one of the kind of the neat things about about this tradition. But Rosamund Johnson's brother really tried, I guess, to to establish what this what these would have sounded like on on the plantation. And Johnson gives credit to his brother for for that contribution. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's nice. You can really, I think, contrast this, I think, with what Du Bois wrote in, on Sorrow Songs in The Souls of Black Folk. Um, they, they, they do cover some similar ground, but I think what you see in Johnson is someone who's much more in this, the field of, of black art and black poetry, reflecting on these things, while Du Bois is a bit distant from that, and he's he's coming at it more as a as a scholar and a philosopher, almost trying to understand these things. And you know, Johnson even had a much more complex relationship with Christianity than Du Bois ever did. So I, I think it gives a nice contrast. They can be read together, I think, um, in interesting ways. Um, next, the next essay we have here is called "The Dilemma of the Negro Author." It's not very long. It's written in the American Mercury. It was written in the American Mercury, published in 1928. Now, the American Mercury, if you don't know, is Mencken's um, journal or the magazine founded by H.L. Mencken. Um, and we know from his autobiography that Johnson had met Mencken at one point and, and they seem to have a fairly good conversation. And uh, he published uh, people pretty broadly across the American literary landscape at, at the time. Um, just looking at this online, he published Clarence Darrow, W.B. Du Bois, Faulkner, Fitzgerald, Langston Hughes, Johnson, Sinclair Lewis, George Schuyler, who, who's a Harlem Renaissance writer. He wrote a very interesting novel called Black No More. Uh, he was a prominent black conservative of the Harlem Renaissance years. Uh, Edgar Lee Masters, Eugene O'Neill, 
uh, and others. So, you know, that's it. Uh, it remained in print until 1981. All right. So this uh, this article, the dilemma of the Negro author, it's it's very interesting, and in fact, it, it seems to connect really to partially what. Du Bois is talking about when he talks about double consciousness and the veil. If you remember in our conversations about Du Bois, his idea of the veil was that black people always look at themselves, you know, as anyone looks at themselves, but all, but then always on, a, on another level, they look at themselves as white America sees them because the culture, the politics, the, the, the power structures define the world around him in terms of whiteness. So there's always this kind of double consciousness. Um, the way he talks about it in the early on in The Souls of Black Folk is, you know, how does it feel to be a problem, right? You live your life just as a person, but then it's, you can't avoid being identified by others as a problem and then seeing yourself, your own existence as problematic, as, as something that, as the question, the Negro question or whatever. And Johnson, he, although he doesn't address it directly, he talks about this, this dilemma of, you know, who's our audience? I think that's partially what he's getting at. Who is our, our audience? Is our audience going to be um, essentially, are white people our audience? I guess this is the question he asks. In that sense, are we going to give in to double consciousness even in our most intimate writing and in our artistic creations? Or are we just writing for black people? Or are we just writing for art's sake? And I guess there's different mixtures of these things that, that can take place. I don't think it's incompatible to have artist propaganda and, and still be art. I, I think some propaganda can be very beautiful, certainly. Um, but this is what he's getting at. I don't think it comes up with a clear answer here, but it's something that's that's kind of floating around, a discussion that's floating around during the Harlem Renaissance, in which you had some writers like Du Bois who pushed more for artist propaganda. Um, and Johnson makes statements along those lines, too, from time to time. But other people, maybe like Claude McKay, um, Langston Hughes and others who were more eager to actually present life as it was and, and to be more true to life, you know, even if it doesn't, if it's not pretty to look at necessarily. And, um, and that, that's partially what he's getting at here in this essay. The big problem, of course, is if a black writer writes with a white audience in his mind, he's always going to be censoring himself or or presenting his material in a certain way with that, with maybe white assumptions in his mind and white opinions about black people. And, you know, maybe he feels he has to address those opinions or maybe he feels he has to conform to certain prejudices. And therefore, he's always going to be, you know, limiting himself and limiting his vision. Okay, so I'll just read a bit of this for you. Quote, um, if the Negro author selects white America as his audience, he is bound to run up against long-standing artistic conceptions about the Negro, against numerous conventions and traditions through which art has been binding, or through age has become binding, in a word against the whole row of hearts and stereotypes, which are not easily broken up. White America has some firm opinions as to what the Negro is, and consequently some pretty well-fixed ideas about what should be written about him and how. What is the Negro in the artistic conception of white America? In the brighter light, he is a simple, indolent, docile, improvident peasant, a singing, dancing, laughing, weeping child, picturesque beside his log cabin with the snowy fields of cotton, naively charming with his banjo and his songs and the moonlight around the lazy southern rivers, a faithful, ever-smiling, and genuflecting old servitude to the white folks of quality, a pathetic and pitiable figure. In the darker light, he is an impulsive, irrational, passionate, savage, reluctantly 
wearing a thin coat of culture, so only hating the white man but holding an innate and inescapable belief in the white man's superiority, an everlasting alien and irredeemable element in the nation, a menace to Southern civilization, a threat to the Nordic race purity, a figure casting a sinister shadow across the future of the country. End quote. And those are the stereotypes, right? The good and the, the well, they're both not very flattering, but I guess one is like the good stereotype and the other is the, the bad one. And what would they be? The, the Uncle Tom on the one hand and the, what's it called? Oh, the, like the, the Zip Coon or the, you know, Jim Crow kind of figure. And for women, it was the Jezebel and the Mammy, right? The good, the quote unquote good one was Mammy, the, the, quote-unquote bad one was the Jezebel figure and they kind of fit in these stereotypes described here but if you write with white people as your audience how do you get around these stereotypes is partially um, Johnson's dilemma here and then why does this matter well it matters because you know you, how do you write outside those stereotypes if if whites are your audience and he says at one point that it would strain the credulity of white America beyond the breaking point for a negro writer to put out a novel dealing with the, the wealthy class of colored people the idea of Negroes of wealth living in luxurious manner is still too unfamiliar. Such a story would have to be written in the burlesque vein to make it all plausible and acceptable. So the, what are the answers? Well, the one, one solution to this is simply to ignore the, the white audience altogether and write strictly for the black audience or, you know, just write beyond without a consideration of what the audience is there. Just write art and, and see where it lands. And this would, of course, be problematic if you're of the opinion that art, to some degree, has to be propaganda. And then he, he kind of develops this. And since he spent so much time in, in the theater circuit and trying to get butts in the seat, you know, when he was working with his brother in New York City, he's got a really interesting perspective on this issue. And that is, you know, in, in, in theater, right, you really can't write plays without considering the audience to a degree because you're trying to make money, right? And... Your money is based on how many people see it. And, you know, if you don't have enough people come on opening night, you know, your play is going to fail and you're going to lose money on the venture. So and in a lot of theaters even don't really have enough seats or, or some theaters don't even allow black people in or would have different nights for them. So it's almost it would be almost impossible in a place like New York City for a black uh, playwright to not grapple with. The white audience so maybe a novelist maybe has a little bit of luxury here that maybe a, a playwright doesn't have and i actually think it's it's he's kind of writing from the trenches here on this dilemma he's not writing like i think the way du bois does when he deals with this issue of propaganda versus art kind of from a theoretical standpoint he's saying you know there are practical concerns here about you know just how do we survive as artists if we don't consider the white audience and then the dilemma becomes how do you then acknowledge that there is going to be a white audience who's consuming your work but they come at your work with so many prejudices and stereotypes now his solution maybe is a bit mealy mouth because he does say at the end that the solution is to to kind of reconcile these audiences and and to create work that that bridges these audiences and and helps white people understand the black experience better so i don't know how satisfying that is to but but maybe that's the best he can hope for in, in this essay. But what I like about this is he acknowledges the actual practical issues and that these aren't debates that, that can be had purely from kind of an intellectual theoretical point of view because 
you know, artists' livelihood depends on audience. It's, it's not something that can be so easily ignored. Um, yeah, I guess you could be the starving artist, true to your art and, and whatever, but you know, you're not going to be an artist very long if that's if that's your approach. Okay, um, next we have kind of I guess a, a similar sounding essay. And that's Race, Prejudice, and the Negro Artist. It was written in 1928 in Harper. So again, we see him writing in, in um, mainstream national publications. Um, so what does this essay say? It, it's not doing so much with the, the specific question of who is our audience. It's, it's doing more broadly of where does, what's the relationship between the very real racial prejudice in America, in its cities, in the South, everywhere, in every level, and and the art that's being produced by by black artists. Okay, and then he also talks about what what role has art played in transforming or revising or or undercutting racist attitudes. Quote, but the story does not halt to this point. The Negro has done a great deal through his folk art creations to change the national attitude towards him. And now the efforts of the race have been reinforced and magnified by the individual Negro artist, the conscious artist. It is fortunate that the individual Negro artist has emerged, for it is more than probable that with the ending of this creative period of blues, which seems to be at hand, the whole folk creative effort of the Negro in the United States will come to a close. All the psychological and environmental force are working to that end. At any rate, it is the individual Negro artist that is now doing most to affect a crumbling of the inner walls of racial prejudice. There are outer and inner walls. The emergence of the, inter of the individual artist is the result of the same phenomenon that brought about the new evaluation and appreciation of the folk art creations, end quote. Um, now, what he means by the internal and the external, of course, I, is double consciousness, is, is the internal um, wall. So he's actually talking about the Du Bois' dream here of, of transcending the veil through, through art and through, through creativity. He does think this period of the 1920s, the Harlem Renaissance, is really key in, in creating art that's... that's maybe not hyphenated so much, right? It still is. It's still African-American art, but it's it's much more clearly part of, of the American literary tradition and exported, unlike some of the folk traditions that, that had always existed there, like the spirituals and, and some of the folk music. What's happened in the 20s is it gets codified as part of American art and even accepted to a certain degree by whites. And that, he thinks, is very significant in breaking down the, you know, racial prejudice in America. And he does think art has this power to, to begin to break this down. Now, why does this happen? Well, the way it happens for Johnson here is you're, the white American approaches black America through this haze of prejudice and stereotypes, right? And he talked about them in the previous essay, right, in, in great detail. Um, now, what art does then is, especially art that that is somewhat mainstream and art that's that's accepted as as American like literature or American music. So, you know, things like ragtime or blues, um, some of the Harlem Renaissance novels, too, is it it's then it shatters. It confronts those those stereotypes. And he thinks art has this power that that maybe other th things don't like an essay doesn't same have that same power that that art does. Quote, in a word, the stereotype is that the Negro is nothing more than a beggar at the gate of the nation waiting to be thrown the crumbs of civilization. 
Through his artistic effort, the Negro is smashing this immemorial stereotype faster than he's ever done through any other method he's been able to use. He is making it realize that he is the possessor of a wealth of national endowment and that he has long been a generous giver to America. He is impressing upon the national mind the conviction that he is an active and important force in American life and he is a creator as well as a creature and he is given as well as received that he is a potential giver of larger and richer contributions. End quote. This is very much what Du Bois was saying about about the contribution of art too. And I, I think if you go back and read his essay on the, the sorrow songs, you know, he talks about this as a gift. This, this has been freely given, in fact, given by people who everything of it has been taken from them. And yet this gift has been given to America. And Johnston is, is seeing this then as a tool to shatter um, racial prejudice. It's a very optimistic view on art, I have to say. I, I don't know if I fully accept that um, maybe I'm kind of looking at it cynically because you know people don't quite you know consume art perhaps the way way they did I, I guess TV is art to a degree but a lot of that is the hardly art in my view I mean reality TV and, and the like you know how often do you know was poetry consumed by the average American anymore I, I don't know or, or theater plays operas, this kind of stuff. I, I don't know. It's, so I, I doubt how effective it can be maybe now, but maybe in the 20s it was having this effect. I, I think maybe the popularity of blues and ragtime maybe did that. And it required some certain level of popularity for this for this break to happen. But the most important part here is is the trans transition from it being kind of this hyphenated art. Like, oh, that's just black American art that's just you know those are just plantation songs or something and actually saying that this is really this is American art right it's it's not in the Norton anthology of African-American literature it's in the Norton anthology of American literature it's 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 canon in America and he's saying that it's this is happening in front of him in in the late 20s in large part due to the achievements of the Harlem Renaissance writers um, so anyways that that's um, that's what we have for essays. And then next in the anthology, Library of American Anthology on Johnson's writing, we have a few chapters of Black Manhattan. Uh, this is a book. I, it's been a while since I read the whole thing, but I, I have, you know, gone through the whole thing. But it has probably been like 15 years, so I, I don't really remember. What we're given here um, is really the chapters or some chapters about the artistic history of black Manhattan um, and some of the stuff he knew best, Johnson knew best. I, I think I, so it's a wise decision in a way because that's really where Johnson's connection to New York was strongest was in art. But this book actually is a whole history of African-Americans in New York City um, going back pretty far. I mean, it even goes back to the colonial period and like the uprisings of 1712 and 1741 and the American Revolution and all that. So it's a deep, it's it's a long history of black Manhattan. It's it's not just, you know, uh, although mostly I guess it's a book about the Harlem Renaissance and the Great Migration and, and the impact of these migrants to the remaking of New York City. It does have, it's a, it's a straight up history of this. But it's really when he gets talking about art that I guess he's he's really speaking from a position of, of authority because he knows a lot about it. He was in that culture for, for a number of years with his brother, Rosamond. So I don't know how much I want to talk about it. It, it covers a lot of, 
of ground that we've already seen with um, in his autobiography and even in Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man where some of these things are talked about as well. A lot of plays are mentioned and this chapter, I think it's chapter 15 and 16, maybe 17, yeah, of, of Black Manhattan. And really what you have here is a lot of details of the different plays that were performed in, in the 1920s um, while he was living in New York at the time. And, and some of these are quite notable. Um, Blackbirds, uh, Eugene O'Neill's play, All God's Children Got Shoes, and others. I, I don't even remember all of them, but it's, it's really, these chapters kind of work as a, as a history of the theater uh, in, during the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, and I, he's not just talking about black writers, of course, you know, Eugene O'Neill wasn't, but he, he wrote a play about the black experience, All God's Children Got Shoes, which, which I'll look at eventually in this podcast, I'm, I'm quite sure. But one thing I do want that struck me when I was reading this was, was Johnson's attention to the question of technology and how technology was, was creating a broader audience for black arts, partially because this connects to this early this 1928 essay race prejudice and the negro artist because it required this this taking of of these this culture from being just folk traditions of of a, of a minority group into mainstream american art and I, I think technology probably played a very key role in doing that and, and here's what he writes and this this i think is in chapter 17 of it there have been three lines upon which the Negro in New York had moved forward, three lines leading to the phonographs, radio, and screen audiences. For a long while, Negroes had been making phonograph records. They had been Jubilee singers, singers of spirituals and of Negro comic songs. Burt Williams' royalties from the sales of his records is a very considerable sum. Roland Hayes, Paul Robeson, J. Rosman Johnson, Taylor Gordon, and other artists had made records. But probably the Negro artists most popular with the phonograph audience are the singers of blues. The three Smiths, Mammy, Bessie, Clara, not sisters, are known by all listeners to blues through the phonograph. And then he goes on in some details about Clara Smith. Then he talks about broadcasting and radio stations and how key those were. And then finally, this transition from stage to screen and, and the, the beginnings of of actual film and that, that's where he cuts off he doesn't say much about film but of course in the 20s you have a fairly vibrant african-american um filmmaking community a lot of these films have been lost unfortunately um but uh what's the, what's the one that was recently rediscovered i mean the, the director was oscar Michaud. um in this film was like most of his films have been lost i think but this one was recently found the I'm looking at the uh, the Wikipedia article for it. I should know. Um, oh, he did a version of The House Behind the Cedars. Oh, Within Our Gates. Uh, that's the one, I think. And that was recently, uh, that was thought lost and then and then found. And that's kind of his response, Michaud's response to um, Birth of the Nation. So a good one to check out. It's probably on YouTube. So, the, I think the technological history here is, is if we just get a taste of it, but it might be worth exploring and thinking about a little bit more. So, that does it for his Johnson's prose writing. And then we're left with his, his poems. And we essentially have... Oh, I, 
we have uh, here, we have some selected poems. We have 50 Years, which was a collection of poems he wrote. The, the cornerstone of that was 50 Years, which was his kind of reflection on 50 years since the Emancipation Proclamation, right? And he actually talked about writing this in Along the Way and how there's this question, should we celebrate 50 years from Juneteenth or from the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation? But I guess he was impatient, so he wrote it in 1913 rather than 1915. Um, so that's 50 years. It's, it's a very good poem looking at, you know, the successes of black America and the struggles since since 1863 through reconstruction and through and the rise of Jim Crow up until 1913. Um, so and then that collection had other poems in it too including many poems he wrote or were inspired by his time in in Latin America as a diplomat and then we have God's trombone which is his most important uh, work of, of writing and then we have a couple songs here I think they included two under the bamboo tree which if you search on YouTube, you can actually find a really nice version uh, performed by Judy Garland, um, which is kind of fun, from a movie, a fairly famous movie. I forgot the name of it, though. Uh, and then we also have the words, the text for Lift Every Voice and Sing, the original text, uh, which, you know, it's been revised for gender reasons, right? There's like that line, come to the place for which our fathers sighed. I think it's now usually sung as our parents' side, but we get the original text here of Lift Every Voice and Sing, the one written in 1900. Um, and a few other few other poems. And to be honest, I, I don't know how to talk about poetry. It's something I, I really have to work on, I realize. But um, maybe I need some help. Maybe I need to take a class in poetry and analysis of poetry. It's one of those things that, you know, even... You know, when I was reading a lot of literature, I always found poetry so difficult and so time-consuming and, and stressful to read that I often just skip by it. It's, it's actually one reason I haven't done Poe yet. I've been meaning to do Poe, partially because I want to do um, Arthur, Gordon, Arthur, Arthur Gordon Pym, in part to prepare for um, some Lovecraft stuff I've been working on. Because um, I need, I need to, that, that book, Arthur Gordon Pym, to fully, I think, understand At the Mountains of Madness. So I've been meaning to do Poe, pushing myself to do that, but the, the poetry has kind of intimidated me. Now, this is a lot easier than Poe's poetry, though, but I still don't really know um, how to start here. But I don't think I'm going to talk about all of them. But let, let's start with 50 years. So the subtitle of 50 years is 1863 to 1913. I guess the heart of 50 years, in this right to America and this right to citizenship and this, this, that, the, you know, citizenship has already been earned. Um, and this is something, of course, Du Bois believed and Johnson believed strongly as well that, you know, th that this was already paid for this, the, the full rights of citizenship had already been paid for through toil and through labor um, and through this just being their land. Um, quote, this land of ours, uh, sorry, I'll try again. This land is ours by right of birth. This land is ours by right of toil. We help to turn this virgin soil. Our sweat is in its fruitful, fruitful soil. Where once the tangled forest stood, where flourished once rank weed and thorn, behold the path traced peaceful wood, the white, cotton white and yellow corn. To gain these fruits that 
have been earned to hold these fields that have been won. Our arms have strained, our backs have burned, bent bare beneath the ruthless sun. End quote. And, and that, I think, is the sum core argument of 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 this this actually quite beautiful little poem this was followed by to america which is short i'll read you the whole thing it's, it's a nice little poem because it it basically makes this claim that you know we're here and you know how do you want us do you want us as serfs do you do you in your republic do you want to have a, a massive population of serfs or or do you want men you know, able to make their full contributions uh, unencumbered. Quote, how would you have us as we are? Are sinking neath the load we bear? Our eyes fixed forward on a star? Or gazing empty and at despair? Rising or falling, men or things, with dragging pace or footsteps fleet? Strong, willing sinews in your wings or tightening chains about your feet? End quote. That's the whole poem. And of course, this this final image of Black America being the chains on the feet of, of white America or America at large, I think is a very compelling image um, considering the history of, of bondage. What else? Um, the ones he wrote. Oh, this one is fun. The White Witch. Um, I don't know when this these were all originally written. I think this was in 50 years. Yeah, this was in 50 years in other poems. A collection. This is a rather fun one, which is it's kind of painting white women as a as a danger. I gotta think he's uh, Johnson's trolling white people a little bit in this in this poem. Uh, quote: Oh brothers mine, take care, take care. The great white witch rides out tonight. Trust not your prowess nor your strength. Your only safety lies in flight. For in her glare glance there is a snare, and in her smile there is a blight. The great white witch, have you not seen? Then younger brother mine forsooth, like nursery children you have looked for ancient hag and snarled tooth. Oh no, not so, the witch appears in all the glowing charms of youth. Her lips are like carnations red, her face like newborn lilies fair, her eyes like ocean waters blue. She moves with subtle grace and air, and all around her head there floats the golden glory of her hair. End quote. And then the whole thing kind of is painted as a warning uh, to his brothers not to be uh, trapped by the white witch um, yeah but I, I I can't help but think he's he's trolling um, the whites who were all paranoid about the the threat of black America to white womanhood um, you know he, he, he actually talks quite openly about this not not so much in the lynching article but in other articles he talks pretty openly about this obsession of, of white America towards towards black sexuality. He doesn't quite often say it directly, but it's certainly a subtext of, of quite a lot of his writing. Um, a nice little poem here, Girl of 15, uh, where this 40-year-old man is watching this 15-year-old girl walk by his window every day and how this makes her feel younger, makes him feel younger. He's a little ashamed and, you know, feels bad that he's kind of gazing at her. But it's kind of a sweet little poem about an older man with 40 winters in his heart who has these who have these 40 winters taken off when he, he sees this this young woman I don't know if that's just drawn from life or not I don't think Johnson was 50, 40 yet when he when he wrote this possible but I think he was still in his 30s um, then we have a whole series of 
connected poems called Down by the Carib Sea, which certainly were inspired by his time in Nicaragua or, or Venezuela. Um, got the cigarette, well, like one, uh, a few stanzas about cigarettes, uh, one about the lottery girl who's selling lotteries, one called the dancing girl. And they're really rather fun because they they explore different aspects of, of life in, in Latin America and things that he seemed to be inspired by and interested in. All right, I'm, I'm all ready to sh uh, close down here, but I do need to talk about God's trombones. Um, the whole thing is included in here, and it's, it's basically, except for Wish Every Voice to Sing and a couple of their poems, it's, it, it makes up the last 30 pages or so. Um, and this is a series of poems, I think seven or so. Uh, they're all written around the same period of time, I think in a two-week period, with one exception, one he wrote, had written a few years earlier. And they are all essentially folk sermons. Um, so it's drawing from this culture of, of vernacular folk sermons that go all the way back to the plantation, right? Because, you know, in the plantation, church was... You know, you went and listened to what the white preacher said or what the probably often what the, the planter himself, your your owner would lecture to you about Jesus if there wasn't a, a preacher nearby. But then, of course, there were the vernacular traditions that slaves embraced. Now, if there was a literate slave, they could draw from the Bible, but usually they were drawing from oral traditions and stories they could pass down. Um, and of course, there's much more focus on, yeah, on equality, on liberation from slavery, you know, the Moses stuff gets a lot of attention. Um, and other, really the story, the more, I guess, the less theological and more narrative aspects of the Bible get uplifted because they're easier to remember for people who weren't allowed to, to, to read. And he, Johnson, felt that this kind of what he calls the old-time Negro preacher was a kind of a dying art form, but he thought it's really worth preserving. And he wanted to preserve it in a respectful way and he's also responding to a tendency of writers at the time, and I think he would put Chestnut in this group. I don't think he mentions Chestnut once in this whole anthology, by the way. But the way Chestnut used dialect and, and kind of vernacular and tried to describe, you know, language as spoken, right? But in doing so, resorted to, I guess, a lot of cliches about, about, black dialect. Uh, I don't even know if dialect's the right term. We talked about this before with chestnut. It's really like an accent almost. But often it, it gets kind of exaggerated. And I, I think Johnson didn't like that because it kind of reinforced this otherness and this this kind of a vulgar aspect of, of black life. And he didn't want to do that so much. So even though these are coming from a, a vernacular tradition, he writes it in very beautiful verse. Um, but it's got the, like the tempo and the pose and the themes and the style of, of a vernacular um, preacher. In fact, I listened to a, a, a record recording, or like a recording of this from, I don't know, the 50s or 60s, which could have you know, played in someone's home. And they even included like the call and response aspect in it because a lot of these you know, do have that call and response aspect, which you would have seen in a folk sermon. Yeah, anyway, sorry, I was kind of fumbling about this talk about 
dialect. And I, I shouldn't have been, because Johnson actually addresses in a preface, an introduction to God's trombones, exactly what he's trying to do with, with this dialect. So rather than me kind of fumbling at what he's trying to get after, let's just use his own words here. Quote, at first thought, Negro dialect would appear to be the precise medium for these old-time sermons. However, as the reader will see, these poems are not written in dialect. My reason is not for not using dialect as double. First, although the dialect is the exact instrument for voicing certain traditional phrases of Negro life, it is, and perhaps by that very exactness, a quite limited instrument. Indeed, it is an instrument with but two complete stops, pathos and humor. This limitation is not due to any defects of the dialect as a dialect, but to the mold of conviction in which the Negro dialect in the United States has been set to the fixing effects of its long association with the Negro only as a happy-go-lucky or a forlorn figure, end quote. So he's not, has a problem with this as an actual language, you know, or a, or a variant of English. His problem with it is that it's become cliche and it's become a stereotype of, of how black people talk. And he doesn't want to reinforce that in, in these poems. Um, later on, he talks about the style he embraces here, quote, the tempo of the preacher I have endeavored to indicate by the line arrangements of the poem, a certain sort of pause that's marked by quit intaking and audible expulsion of breath I've indicated by dashes. There's a dedicated syncopation of speech, the carding in in many syllables, or a lengthening out of which must be left to the reader's ears, end quote. And there's more kind of instructions here of how to read this. And, I, you know, I'm probably not qualified to do this, but if someone were to want to perform these, you know, he gives these kind of guidance and like, this is how it's supposed to be performed. But if you can get it in your head, you know, it really helps. And actually, I just listened to them on, on YouTube and there's various versions on YouTube. Some some are quite good. Um, it's professionally done. Um, so anyways, they're really great. And I, I think God's Trombones is really one of his masterpieces. But I really don't know where to start, except that it's just an experience to have. I, I think it's just a beautiful experience to to listen to or to read and to, once you understand what he's trying to do here, I think they're really, they're really powerful. So I think that's gonna do it for, for uh, James Waldon Johnson, um, a nice anthology. It's, at first I was kind of hesitating to, to go into it, partially because I love Du Bois so much um, that I didn't wanna like, really let go of, of, of him, but I had to move on. And Johnson seemed just on the surface more square than Du Bois did to me. But I've really come to, to appreciate his work a lot, and I, I really recommend this anthology. Um, you know, even if you can't get through along this way, I understand that can be a bit of a chore. The other stuff included in here are worth the price. I mean, one reason I like the Library of America, you know, not to show for them too much, but, you know, this was what? I know they're like 40 bucks, but you usually can get them used. This, I, I subscribe. And, you know, I don't have an active subscription because it costs too much to ship to um, Taiwan. But sometimes I buy them when I'm in America through my subscription. It's like 25 bucks for a volume. You know, but you can get them on the used market for less than that for sometimes five, five, ten dollars. You know, but what you're getting here, you're getting four books, five books in a lot of cases. So if you if you think of how much you would have bought those books, if you bought them individually. You know, they know a lot of this is public domain stuff, but usually people still buy the physical copies of these. You know, it's worth it. And I think so even if without the long this way, you're getting autobiography, next color band, you're getting all these essays, this these essays, which you wouldn't get probably altogether in one place anywhere else. And you get two books of poetry. So it, it's 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 a nice collection, I think, to have. Um, so this puts an end to my series on turn of the century black writers. As I said, I think in a previous episode, I, I will return to 
do another series of Black Riders probably in another year or so. And that will probably be a big series where I'll look at Baldwin, Wright, and, and Hurston. Uh, so kind of moving ahead in time to the, to the 30s and 40s and 50s. I guess Baldwin would take you up into, into the 70s and 80s. So, but those will be the, the core agenda when I come back to looking at Black Riders sometime in the future. Um, but the question is what to do now, what to do now. I've really been just kind of scanning through different books and trying to decide. And usually I'm like a, a volume of head of recording. And in this case, I'm not. I've, I haven't even fully decided what I wanted to do. I, but I have decided essentially that I want to do a woman writer. I've only really done one woman writer closely, and that's Alcott. I know I did some with the Harlem Renaissance, but, you know, it, it's, it's time I, I do throw in a woman writer. Um, so it's going to be Willa Cather. And my inspiration for this is partially this summer I'm going to be spending in Wisconsin. And although I don't have a Wisconsin writer, except Olo Leopold, and he's obviously a man, um, you know, Willa Cather is a Midwesterner. And I think that's one region of America that I haven't looked at at all, except through Langston Hughes' novel, I think, Not Without Laughter. I guess he'd be a Midwesterner. Um, but other than him, I've been, you know, I haven't really looked at any Midwestern writers. So, I want to, you know, Willa Cather will allow me to look into um, a different region of America. I was, you know, I'm kind of in the same period of history, though, at the, you know, the early 20th century. But nevertheless, even though I, I'm not, you know, I was thinking about going back to the 19th century. But uh, I, I think, and Willa Cather is someone I've never read before. So it, I'm in, interested to, to look at her work. I don't know. I have two volumes of her works, and I think Library of America has published three or four so I won't be able to look at all but I'm going to start with her, her her early novels and some of her short stories with Trolls Garden uh, then My Antoninia Song of the Lark some other all stuff none of the stuff I've read before is completely fresh for me so uh, there might be a little bit of a delay in getting some new episodes up but hopefully I'll, I'll that won't happen but anyways that's what I'll be doing next Willa Cather I'm committing to this uh, at least one volume, maybe two volumes of Will Cather's work before um, then I think I'll go back to the 19th century or even the colonial period. But if you have any suggestions, if you know what's in the Library of America, you know what I've looked at already. And if you have any suggestions, please let me know what they are and I'll, I'll certainly take them under consideration. So as always, thank you so much for listening and thank you for sharing this journey through um, late 19th, early 20th century black writers been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot doing it. Um, but if there's anything I missed, anything I should have focused more on, I feel I gave short uh, attention to some some of Johnson's work, and I'm sorry for that. But you know, you only have so much time. So if you have any suggestions or thoughts or comments, please send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail.com. Um, but if not, I'll be back hopefully shortly with my first reflections on the works of. Willa Catherine. See you then.